This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to begin our series on Henrik Ibsen and his great play, A Doll's House. Ibsen was born in Norway, um, a country that shines a bright light on our view of the world more than most of us realize, even though it's a small place geographically. Shines a light, ha, is that a pun? Norway, after all, the land of the midnight sun, where in the summer the sun literally shines at midnight. Well, there is that, but I was actually thinking about the uh, tremendous influence of the Nobel Committee uh, and the prestigious Nobel Peace Prize, the famous committee that grants um, every year since 1901. Uh, on December 10th, from they, they meet at Oslo City Hall and give the awards, and there they announce which human, in their estimation, on planet Earth has conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. I mean, what an amazing designation. <laughs> All right, that's important too, I'll admit it. And I know this is a tangent, but since you brought it up, why is the Nobel Peace Prize selected and given out by Norwegians instead of Swedish people? Alfred Nobel was Swedish and not Norwegian. Well, uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure anyone truly knows, but it was definitely stipulated by Alfred Nobel at his death that Although the other awards would be awarded in Stockholm, Sweden, the Peace Prize would be awarded in Oslo, Norway, and it's been that way ever since. Well, Norway is a country that has established itself for many years at the top of everyone's list of, quote, best places to live on planet Earth, a designation it won again even in 2020, in if COVID you can believe year. it. It has the highest life expectancy in the world, in case you're wondering. That's 82.4 on average. Second place, by the way, went to Ireland. But its population is also one of the best educated in the world. And the gross national income, that's always good, ranks third after Switzerland and then again Ireland. Well, 
And yet, Christy, I wonder if you would like living there. Because let me remind you that the average temperature in the summer is only 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. I know. After growing up in the tropicals and then Memphis, where our average temperature is about 90, <laughs> I think I'd have to at least buy a new wardrobe. But maybe that's not a negative thing. Uh, well, uh, no, I guess that's true. But Norway is also a land that we generally think of for its really striking outdoor beauty. And it's really characterized by those magnificent fjords. Fjords. One of the few Norwegian words that almost everybody knows literally means where one fares through. And if you see pictures of them, which is the only way I've ever experienced a fjord, I can see why they're called that. They're truly fairy tale like and they're hundreds of miles long. And although Norway isn't the only place in the world where they exist, they do have a healthy 1,700 mm. of them. Two are featured on UNESCO's World Heritage List. So, Gary, for those of us who've never seen a fjord, what is that? Well, uh, I will be honest. I've never seen them in person either, but I'll give you a description anyway. Okay. Uh, they're long, narrow inlets of water with steep cliffs on uh, both sides, and they were created by glaciers thousands and millions of years ago. And they're astonishingly deep and uh, often thousands of feet or meters deep. And uh, they say one of the best ways to see them is on a cruise ship. So... That's my plan. That sounds like a great plan. So after the fjords and the Nobel Prize, I want to say, to be honest, this comes before Nobel Prize. What comes to my mind when I think of Norway, maybe are Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> before Ibsen even. Well, Vikings for sure put their mark on Northern Europe. Uh, and many of us have a, a very specific image in our minds of raiding warriors arriving in those Ships that could move, you know, around 15 to 17 knots, which is pretty fast. And although the Vikings are mostly known for colonizing and conquering, uh, which could be viewed negatively. I'd say. <laughs> you would be happy to know that women's rights date back to before the 1100s among the Vikings. Women had the right to divorce. They had the right to own property. And they were protected by law from sexual harassment. Well, there you go, and I guess that's a good segue for the reason we're talking about Norway today, because after those things, I guess one of the things that Norway is most famous for is their native son, Henrik Ibsen, who was also, let me say, a feminist, although he fought that label like he fought every other label, but I'm still going to call him that. Oh, <laughs> yes, I guess he did. But let's jump back just a little bit before we talk about Ibsen specifically to talk a little bit more about Norway, because this little country has made such an important impact on the world. But it isn't a country that necessarily and deliberately draws a lot of attention to itself. No, it, it really doesn't. With one exception, Lasse Matberg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the real live Instagram version of Thor that has made a, a hit all over the Internet these days. <laughs> all right, all right, no drooling, no drooling. I mean, I was thinking of King Harold V. You know, I don't think a lot of people even realize that Norway is a constitutional monarchy with a very active monarch. You know, Harold V, who is 84 years old now, is a symbol and has been of consolation and support, and his beautiful wife, Sonia, enjoy a remarkable 80% approval rating. <laughs> 
Well, that's incredible because I'm not even sure Disney World enjoys an 80% approval rating. Exactly. So the modern, the highly educated, and the highly urbanized nation of Norway, which we've kind of built up as, you know, an incredible place to live today, is not the Norway that Ibsen describes or grew up in. His world was much more rural. He described it using words like backwards, although that's probably how a lot of people describe Memphis, if I have to be honest, (laughs) comparing it to other parts of the more glamorous world as he was doing. True. Um, And he was born in the city of Skane in the Telemark region of southern Norway. And it's a port city. And today the municipality really boasts a a healthy 54-plus thousand residents, and it's famous for being the birthplace of Henrik Ibsen. Uh, During Ibsen's day, it was one of the largest and oldest cities in Norway, and the Ibsen family was a solidly um, middle-class family, apparently well-respected and prosperous, but both sides of his family tree were well-established, and they'd worked and made their money in the trade and the shipping industry. And that's all well and good until something happened, And Ibsen's father lost his business. And when he lost his business, the family just lost apparently everything. And things went bad from that point on. It ended up with Henrik, even at the age of 15, dropping out of school. He moved out of his home to a place over 100 miles away to become a pharmacist's assistant for basically just room and board. By 18, he'd fathered a child out of wedlock. Ultimately, that child would be raised by his mother's family, even though he would support the family until that child was 15. I couldn't find anything to even indicate the two had even met. (laughs) My gosh. Well, so far, there's nothing in the story you're telling that would indicate to me that this is the man that's going to revolutionize theater as we know it and uh, really become the second most produced playwright in the world after William Shakespeare. I know, he didn't have a charmed childhood, but although I will say, I think he dreamed of greatness, maybe all people do, but he did. His sister Hedvig told a story after he became famous that she remembered a conversation they had one day. They were walking up Braxburg Hill in Telemark, and he told his sister, and this is just so absurd, that he wanted to, to, and let me quote him, Achieve the greatest and most perfect of all possible forms of greatness and perfection. <laughs> oh, there you go. The greatest and most perfect of all possible forms of greatness and perfection. Isn't what that a, a nice thing to aspire to? <laughs> that's a lofty goal. Um, but actually, there's a real sense that he came close to doing that almost with the theater. I know. And it just goes to show that you should never count yourself out even if you have no more privilege left in this world, even if you think you have hit rock bottom and screwed the pooch, you're never done till you're dead. And it's a nice comforting thought for some of us. But back to Ibsen. Although at age 18, things were looking a little rough. He didn't have an education. He had this child to support. He still had a couple of plays, you know, like everyone does, that he'd written in his spare time, stashed away in a drawer so... He decided to do what a lot of us decide to do when things have played out like that. He left his little town. In this case, the name of the little town was Grimstad, where he'd been the pharmacy assistant. And he moved to the big city of Oslo, which wasn't Oslo at the time. It was Christiania. He'd been in the healthcare industry, so it's not really surprising that he decided to go to university and pursue a degree in medicine. 
Of course, that dream didn't last long because, and this does tend to damper your dreams, he failed his college entrance <laughs> exam. Hmm. I know. Another low point for him, possibly. But it wasn't going to be that way for long because it was around this time that he finally cut a break in a field that he was much better suited for. He had those little plays, and lo and behold, one of them got staged. So, after all the missteps, by age 23, here Ibsen was having his own play performed on stage. Pretty incredible. After this, a few more doors open, and no more pharmacist, no more doctor. With basically zero experience, all of a sudden, Ibsen has gotten a job as the assistant director to Bergman's main theater. <laughs> well, this, of course, is a moment that his life changed forever because really he clearly is. found his calling. He no longer wanted to be a doctor. Uh, he would become a playwright. But what is even more interesting is that he found himself um, at a particular historical junction for the history of Norway. And as far as theater goes, it's not radically different than what we saw with uh, William Butler Yeats. Norway, like Ireland, had an interest in creating its own unique theater tradition. And while Ireland had been colonized by the British, Norway had been ruled by Denmark for over 400 years. But now there's this movement to start a, a true Norwegian theater company that will produce Norwegian plays that would help shape uh, you know, a unique Norwegian identity. And many of us don't really understand that Norway had ever even been a part of Denmark for 400 years, which, of course, is a pretty long time. <laughs> I think it is. And we certainly don't understand how that affected culture, but, of course, it would, and it did. And Denmark had asserted a lot of cultural and language influence, but at this point in the story, there was a real interest in establishing a Norwegian identity separate from the Danish one. And so uh, the interest in establishing an original Norwegian theater came along at this time perfectly for Ibsen. True, and although the theater in Christiania ultimately had financial problems and Ibsen wasn't particularly super successful and suited for this particular role of creating a Norwegian national identity, and now that we know his style, it makes sense that he wasn't a perfect fit for patriotic pieces. But as, you know, as the director of the theater, he was involved in all the aspects, writing, directing, staging, producing over 145 plays. So this did what you can clearly see that it would do. It taught him the craft. And it was this legacy and this opportunity that opened you know, the intellectual doors that set everything else in motion. Well, and he also met and married Susanna Thorison in 1858. And shortly after, they had their only child, Sigurd. Who, by the way, grew up to become the prime minister of Norway in Stockholm. Another story, but, you know, that's for another time. And, Christy, I know you'll probably point uh, this out later, but Susanna was quite an independent and intelligent woman, and many credit her for um, Ibsen's really ultimate success. Well, of course, I'm going to talk about that, but we won't at the moment. That'll come later, because the theater in Christiana is going to go bankrupt. And Ibsen was sued for incredible amounts of debt. He basically almost got himself thrown in debtor's prison and left the country in some sense in an escape. He got this government writing grant, and they moved to Italy. 
And although he never stayed in one town for very long, he would stay away from Norway in this sort of self-imposed exile for 27 years. When he finally returned to Norway, he would not go back as anything but a hero. (laughs) This celebrity, albeit a kind of controversial one, really. It's amazing to me that although his uh, body was physically out of Norway, it seems Ibsen's mind never left the place, even uh, if he did insult it from time to time. <laughs> kind of did. His plays, uh, including The Doll's House, are set in Norway, and what is even wilder, they are written in Dano-Norwegian, the common written language of Denmark and Norway, and they were published by a Danish publisher, uh, Gildendal. In fact, they were performed first in Sweden, not Italy or Germany, where he was residing. True, and it's such a roundabout way to success. It seems impossible to understand really how it even happened. Most people watching Ibsen plays, this is then and it is now, are watching translated pieces. That doesn't work well a lot of the times. And in his case... The emotion, the appeal, somehow crossed cultures, and really it still does. Ibsen was not the self-promoting influencer, the kind of thing that makes people famous today. He was shy. He was antisocial. He didn't have a famous family. There was not a place to create the significant buzz. He's from a small, undistinguished town, writing in a relatively obscure language. And yet... He is able to emerge and become an icon. You mentioned it before, but it's worth saying again, Ibsen plays are the second most performed plays in the world, only after William Shakespeare. It's incredible. They're translated in 78 different languages, performed everywhere. Never mind the fact and this is something that we can't even really appreciate today, but he changed the way theater would be done from this point onward, and we follow his model still. Okay, I've heard people say that before, but I'm not sure I understand what you mean. And um, even after reading A Doll's House, I, I don't understand how it's revolutionary besides the content being obviously controversial for the period. I mean, in many ways, the the plot and the characters seem kind of ordinary. And that, darling, is exactly the genius of it. <laughs> Here's what's going on. And think about Shakespeare for a moment, because when you contrast him with Shakespeare, you get the idea. Up to that point, the theater had been a place where people went to get away from the world. And maybe there is still to some degree that that's true. But the plays produced were otherworldly. They're about fairies. They're about monsters. They're about kings. All the things that we think of Shakespeare writing about. And also the things, you know, that Marvel Studios makes <laughs> movies about. Over and over. And obviously there's nothing wrong with escapism. That's a big part of it. Uh, well, of performing arts in general. And that's where Ibsen started. He wrote about Vikings. He wrote about monsters and all the things that would make a really commercially successful movie. Except he made a dis- choice at some point that he was not going to keep going in that direction. He began to study his craft, you know, after 145 plays. But he began to pay attention at some things that people were doing that were different in other parts of the world, specifically Moscow and Germany, but other places in Europe as well. And there were things that they were doing that appealed to him. So he made a shift. And instead of writing stories that took us 
out of the world, he began to write stories that reflect the world. He would write the story of our lives. He began writing plays that were realistic. And when I use that word, I'm talking about the theater movement today we call realism. The plays he's most famous for start with the 12 he wrote between and the years, you know, are important in some sense, 1877 to 1899. Some people call them his sociological plays. Other people just call them the Ibsen cycle. It doesn't matter. But Ibsen began writing about middle-class people, not kings, not queens, not fairies. He wrote about problems, real life difficult problems, and he wrote them in prose. He didn't use iambic pentameter or verse. His characters were not going to give long soliloquies or have cheesy asides, talking about philosophy and very obvious ways to be or not to be. It's not what you're going to get. But they are psychological. They would be filled with short exchanges between people, between these characters that we could identify with. They would say the sort of things and do the sort of things that we do, but often we don't even admit to doing. And to us, you say, okay, that's normal. We see that a lot in television or movies, but guess what? We got it from him. Something else that he did that's different. The staging is different. And again, this kind of seems obvious to us because this is how we do plays today. But with realism, the stage is going to have a box set. That means you have three walls and this pretend fourth wall, which faces the audience. The audience or us watching would pretend that we're looking into someone's life, someone's living room, you know, so to speak. The drama would appear ordinary, maybe even bland, but the idea would be that the play would be psychologically driven. The plot would not be the thing, really. The interior lives of the people involved would be the thing. The protagonist would rise up and fight, not dragons, but something that may be even more complicated than a hobbit dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Something internal. The kinds of things that we rise up against. Things that are embarrassing, like syphilis, the disease Dr. Rank inherited from his father. (laughs) Oh, my. So uh, what about a doll's house? Well, exactly. What is a doll's house? What exactly is it about? By the way, that title itself is even controversial. In Norwegian, it's really a doll house, which isn't quite the same as a doll's house. So just that, you you talk about translation, that's a problem for another conversation. But when it came out, a doll's house rocked the world almost as much as syphilis might have. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a reference. I know. It premiered in Copenhagen in December of 1879 to a packed house, and the applause was incredible. But everyone that was in the theater left scandalized. When it played in Germany, the lead actress, who, by the way, was this incredibly famous, iconic actress at the time, refused to perform the ending as written. And she had the kind of clout that forced Ibsen to rewrite the ending, if you can imagine, to her liking. She threatened that if he didn't rewrite it for her, she would get someone else who would. And since they didn't have copyright laws, he knew that you know she could follow through with her threat. So he rewrote this awful ending that he hated. 
But in Victorian England, the play was censored and forbidden to be performed. In America, you know us, didn't even perform it for another 10 years. <laughs> the Americans are always <laughs> slow. I know, aren't we? Uh, so we're going to talk about just what other people thought about it, or is it time to find out what that scandal was all about? Oh, let's find out about this scandal. All right. Well, the setting is simple. It's in an unnamed, fairly average Norwegian town in an upper middle class home. The whole thing from start to finish only occupies three days of Christmas. It opens with apparent harmony and confidence, a happy feeling. And we soon understand that this family is a lot like a lot of middle class families. The family is comfortable, but not necessarily conflict free. And conflict in middle-class families often revolves around money. (laughs) Mm, Well, well, well. You know, it doesn't get more real than that. I know. Another thing that I want to bring up, really, before we start talking, you know, content of the play, uh, when we talk about live theater, we have to remember that when it comes to plays, the creative experience involves more than the writer. A drama is more than a written text. In fact, it's much more than a written text. And that's the beauty of live performances. Every single performance of every single play, by definition, cannot help but be unique. Even audiences affect how a performance goes. But no actor will ever perform exactly the same two nights in a row. But beyond that, every actor who plays a role interprets each character very differently. For example, Christine could actually be a good or a bad person, depending on how an actress understands her and portrays her. Every character will always be like that, but especially in an Ibsen play. Even the details of the set are not going to be standardized. Ibsen, in his directions for A Doll's House, says, and I want to read how he describes it, that the set would be a comfortable, tastefully, but not expensively furnished room. Well, tell me what that looks like. Every set is going to be different. Every director will choose different things to enhance from the set to the costuming to the lightning. All of these collaborative choices affect how we understand and interpret what we're looking at. True. Uh, But isn't there something uh, of the intent of the creator that should be respected and, and really make each performance most of the same? You'd think, but it's not that simple. Let me give you an example. In 2007, in Edinburgh, the director cast Torval, who's the husband, to be a man that is four feet tall, on purpose making him a lot shorter than Nora because he wanted to have a thematic statement. In China, once the play was staged, with a Western woman marrying into a Chinese family. And of course, you can do all this sort of stuff in the theater. This play can be interpreted in many different ways, and it has been, and you could see it a hundred times and it would be completely different. But in all of them, one thing that would be consistent is that the play centers around Nora. But the character Nora is widely considered to be one of the most challenging roles in the Western canon, and deciding what to do with Nora is not simple. Who is this woman? This would have to be, I can't even imagine the kind of discussion that you'd have to have between any director or actress, even before deciding if she could even play the role. So why is that? I mean, she seems really ordinary. Right. And that's kind of true. 
in some sense, she is ordinary. And in some sense, her life could be my life. Her home could be my home. It's the fact that she seems ordinary that makes her so tremendously complicated. Because the more we watch, we realize, well, that's there's no such thing. No human is ordinary, not really. No life, no matter how pampered as hers is, is not carefree. Sooner or later, we all innately understand this. But then we don't know what to do once we understand this. And Ibsen doesn't answer this question for us. In fact, that's exactly what he wants not to do. Ibsen famously said that a dramatist should never answer questions, only ask them. And so what he tries to do is create question upon question. And the questions that he creates in this play have lasted for over a hundred years. The first being, who is this woman? (laughs) (laughs) So let's ask the most basic of all questions about Noor. I mean, what is so enamoring or interesting about an ordinary upper middle class Norwegian woman named Nora? Good question. But for one thing, let me tell you a little bit more about what it'd be like to play Nora. If you're an actress and you take this role, and by the way, lots of actresses are dying to take this role, you may immediately notice that Nora never leaves the stage. Hence the interest in wanting the role. (laughs) I know. The stage is the dollhouse, and Nora is the doll. Nora is always on display. She is always in view. She has no privacy. She has no breaks, and neither does the actress. Everyone comes and goes, but Nora never has the freedom to breathe, and that's the point. A life like this, as pampered as it is, is still claustrophobic. You still have this performance-based life of a doll. There's no privacy in a life like this. And the actress, as Nora, can't help but experience the thrill, but yet the exhaustion from start to finish of the life of a doll in a dollhouse. Okay, so how is a theater viewer supposed to notice that? Well, you likely won't. It's one of those things you intuitively start to feel but you're not conscious about it. To get back to your question, though, for me, the first question I ask myself when I watch this play, and honestly, I'm not even sure I can even answer it, is do I like the woman? Then I find myself asking myself as I try to answer that question another series of questions. Is Nora a good person? Is she a victim? Is she right to seem to enjoy life in a dollhouse? If a person likes that, should I judge that person for that? Should I dislike that person for that? What toll does that take? Is it her exposure or lack of privacy that makes me not like her very much? Because honestly, for most of the play, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that a lot of people do like Nora, and Ibsen himself adored her. Oh, my. Well, your mind runs wild. I mean, why would living like this in your mind make someone unlikable? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, It's about the privacy. Do humans need privacy? I mean, I'm thinking psychologically. What kind of effect does a lack of privacy have on a person, on a person's autonomy maybe? But let's just stick to privacy. Is it possible that no privacy could affect a person in a negative way? Well, 
<laughs> you know how I feel about this topic. Of course I do. I set up the question. There you go. Well, when it comes to the development of children, um, it's absolutely fundamental. I mean, children need to have secrets, ones they pick. Uh, it gives them really some autonomy, and it's kind of where they begin to find their boundaries and their humanity. And, um, you know, parents, you know, the cliche is mothers, but dads can be bad about this too. Uh, you know, they read their kid's cell phone. They track their kid's every movement. They determine their child's friend groups and basically they do their best to control children's every decision. And uh, even if their intentions were pure, it's, it almost raises, always raises children with some dysfunction. And uh, these are often the kids who have secret Facebook pages and secret phones and secret boyfriends across the ocean, maybe years older. And I know somebody that did that. <laughs> right, exactly. We do. And maybe even uh, entirely secret lives. But it is absolutely critical that they have their own boundaries and their own secrets are part of their boundaries. And so when we meet Nora, and Nipson does go a little bit into her personal history, you know, maybe you could suggest that she's been emotionally stunted in her development for being so patronized and controlled. And maybe, you know, this deceptiveness and manipulativeness that you see early on that can be a little bit dislikable, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe she's both of these things. I guess... Ibsen is asking these kinds of questions. But let's read the first line of the play. Okay. Hide the tree carefully, Helene. The children mustn't catch a glimpse of it until this evening. Well, there you go. Nora's entire world in the first word. There's always something to hide. <laughs> so are you telling us that authors, once again, are telling us their story in the first line? They're giving you a tip. There you go. As we look at Nora, we see that she, like many of us, achieves privacy through deception. But what we don't know and what the actress has to decide how to communicate to us, the audience, is why is she doing this? What is she trying to, to achieve with all of this? Is Nora role-playing on purpose in order to get this perfect life that she wants? Is Nora even aware that she's a plaything for Torvald, his squirrel, his skylark? <laughs> Which is, being called a squirrel does not sound oh romantic. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Is her pretending just instinctual? Is she raised like this? When her Because what we're going to see is her deceptions can become serious, but it doesn't seem like she understands that. Is she aware of the difference between secretly eating macaroons and forgery? Because <laughs> I'm not really sure she is. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, but even before we get to that point, the first scene for me really highlights a, a high level of deceit and inauthenticity. And the first action on stage is Nora paying a porter twice the cost of the service, which wouldn't have stood out really, except it's, it's not long after that we begin to understand that um, one of the themes of the play is the real cost of fiscal irresponsibility. I mean, what does it mean by this little uh, detail in the opening act? Well, I don't really know what it means, except it does help us understand that Nora lives in an imaginary world. I mean, she pretends. And overpaying in this moment of Christmas frenzy is just a way to show how this all works. It's setting things in motion. The second action of this play is the business of the macaroons. I want us <laughs> to read this part of the text just to kind of get a feel for how it is. To me, it's 
I don't know how you can read it without sounding so patronizing. Isn't but it? I'll let you be Homer. <laughs> and it's amazing how much you can psychologically reveal through cookies. Oh, I know. That is like a woman. But seriously, Nora, you know what I think about that. No debt, no borrowing. There can be no freedom or beauty about a home life that depends on borrowing and debt. We, too, have kept bravely on the straight road so far, and we will go on the same way for the short time longer than there need to be any struggle. As you please, Torvald. Come, come, my little Skylark. Must not droop her wings. What is this? Is my little squirrel out of temper? Nora, what do you think I've got here? Money. There you are. Do you think I don't know what a lot is wanted for housekeeping at Christmas time? Ten shillings, a pound, two pounds? Thank you, thank you, Torval. That will keep me going for a long time. Indeed, it must. Yes, yes, it will. But come here and let me show you what I have bought. All so cheap. Look, here is a new suit for Ivar and a sword and a horse and a trumpet for Bob and a doll and a dolly's bedstead for Emmy. They're all very plain, but anyway, she will soon break them in pieces. And here are dress links and handkerchiefs for the maids. Old Anne ought really to have something better. And what is in this parcel? No, no, you mustn't see that until this evening. Very well. But now tell me, you extravagant little person, what would you like for yourself? For myself? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't want anything. Oh, yes, but you must. Tell me something reasonable that you would particularly like to have. No, I really can't think of anything unless Torvald. Well? If you really want to give me something, you might. You might. Well, out with it. You might give me money, Torvald. Only just as much as you can afford. But then one of these days, I will just buy something with it. But, Nora... Oh, do, dear Torvald. Please, please do. Then I'll wrap it up in beautiful gilt paper and hang it on the Christmas tree. Wouldn't that be fun? What are little people called that are always wasting money? Spendthrifts. I know. Let us do as you suggest, Torvald, and then I shall have time to think what I most in want of. That is a very sensible plan, isn't it? Indeed it is. That is to say, if you were really to save out of the money I give you and then really buy something for yourself, but if you spend it all on housekeeping and any number of unnecessary things, then I merely have to pay up again. But no, Torvald. You can't deny it, my little Nora. It's a sweet little spendthrift, but she uses up a deal of money. One would hardly believe how expensive such little persons are. It's a shame to say that. But I do really save all I can. Oh, that's very true. All you can, but you can't save anything. You haven't any idea how many expenses we Skylarks and squirrels have, Torvald. You are an odd little soul, very like your father. You always find some new way of wheedling money out of me, and as soon as you've got it, it seems to melt in your hands. You never know where it's gone. Still, one must take you as you are. It is in the blood, for indeed it is true that you can inherit these things, Nora. Oh, I wish I inherited many of Papa's qualities. 
and I would not wish you to be anything but just what you are, my sweet little Skylark. But, do you know, it strikes me that you are looking rather, what shall I say, rather uneasy today. Do I? You do, really. Look straight at me. Well? Hasn't Miss Sweet Tooth been breaking rules in town today? No, what makes you think that? Hasn't she paid a visit to the confectioners? No, I assure you, Torvald. Not been nibbling sweets? No, certainly not. Not even taken a bite at a macaroon or two? No, Torvald, I assure you, really. There, there. Of course I was only joking. I should not think of going against your wishes. No, I'm sure of that. Besides, you gave me your word. Keep your little Christmas secrets to yourself, my darling. They will all be revealed tonight when the Christmas tree is lit, no doubt. (laughs) Well, Nora hides macaroons from her husband, but he wants to control her even at that level, and she does seem to like the payoff of being taken care of. I also find this whole thing very moralizing. We see that his pet grievance is debt. He is going out of his way to bring it up, and she goes out of her way to supplant him. (laughs) Well, it's a pretty complicated coexistence, but we like the phrase, everybody works out their deal. So uh, who are we to judge here? I mean, Nora for being a liar? I don't know. I mean, at this point, I feel some sympathy for her. I would even say the way this reads to me is that this man, Torvald, doesn't want to control Nora. He believes he owns her. Uh, she's his property and his pet, and he loves her, but as a pet, that's an expensive hobby. And I'd say, <laughs> uh, Christy, don't take offense to this, but he loves Nora in the way that a guitarist might love his favorite Stratocaster. Oh, no, you're getting close to home there. <laughs> but they have worked out a deal. Uh, do we let either party off the hook? I mean, she lies and deceives, but she has no concerns in the world but to be a doll, and she loves stuff, and she's materialistic, and she loves buying, she loves money. That was clear. <laughs> right. Well, they've made a deal, and she is a plaything, but she is also an expensive pastime. And again, we're smacked with life because, I mean, how many of these kinds of deals are made all the time? One of my more famous or favorite philosophers, uh, Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I know, but she is deep. She has that very famous song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Does it get any deeper than that? I'm really not sure Ibsen wants to pass judgment on her, but he does seem to be questioning this deal that they made. Is this the deal that people should be making? It seems obvious that Torvald and Nora really don't have any I would just, you know, I don't know what, how do you call it, normal communication, honest communication. There doesn't even seem to be a real human relationship between each other. They manipulate each other. They play with each other. I mean, they even enjoy each other. But is this what connecting on a human level really consists of? Is this a comfortable life that's coming at a cost of someone's humanity? These are the questions, because what is the cost of such a deal? And to think that all of that questioning has happened (laughs) because she bought macaroons. I know, but it's the subtext of the macaroons. The macaroons are important. By the way, 
when I think of macaroons, I can't help but thinking of this old cooking show the girls and I used to watch called Sweet Genius. It was really the first baking show I've ever watched. And they were always making macaroons. They're really seductive, I think. Uh, we don't really have them in Memphis. But when we went to Paris for the first time and I saw all those macaroons, Anna and Lizzie and I did exactly what Nora did. We just gobbled them up till the crumbs came down our faces. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I can see you three uh, staking out the macaroon counters on the Champs-Élysées. That's what we did. They're truly amazing, and I tried to make one. They're hard to do. In fact, we failed. Well, I don't think Nora bakes. And, and we <laughs> no. see that Helmer disapproves of macaroons. Uh, clearly. But more than that, they don't share a life like we would understand healthy couples to do, which is the big picture of what we're looking at. Exactly. And there's so much that is being introduced right here at the beginning. We meet the children because they're dolls, too. There's nothing in this text really ever to suggest that Nora is a nurturing mother. We don't see her building with them anything different than what Torvald has built with her. Everybody's having fun, but it's all very distant. We also have a hint that this style of relationship is what was established with her by her father. So Torval is just perpetuating this lifestyle, yet another generation, which she's going to take on to the third generation. The nurse is taking care of the children. Nora plays with them when she wants to, but it's established early on, and then it's going to be explicitly stated in Act 3 that as Nora is to Torvald, so the children are to Nora. This is such a Freudian <laughs> it is. basement we're going into. I mean, everyone plays a role, it seems, and I'm not sure Ibsen is endorsing this way of life, the way he's writing a play. no. He's a man asking questions, but not answering them. <laughs> well, and, and so I guess we will for the next two episodes. I mean, next time we'll finish discussing Act 1 and move through Act 2. Uh, the final week, we will look at the concluding scene that has scandalized the world for 100 years. In such an ordinary kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> and yet not. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening. We are happy that you are with us today. Uh, we invite you to follow us on all of our social media to check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. And we always like to ask you to connect with a friend and let them know about the podcast. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.